Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people cross international borders every day. This process is often easy, even mundane, but for some, it can be a matter of life and death. In this week's special show, we bring you three pieces on migration and research. We meet Qasem al-Sayed Mahmoud, a Syrian scientist who risked his life leaving his country. We also ask whether the world's current systems are ready to deal with migration caused by climate change. Plus, we take a look at smart borders and the potential dangers of letting a computer decide who's allowed into a country. This is a Nature podcast for March the 2nd, 2017. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Adam Levy. Out of 4.8 million Syrian refugees currently estimated to be living outside their home country, as many as 2,000 are academics. One of them is Qasem al-Sayed Mahmoud. Qasem and his family fled Syria in 2012 and went to Turkey. From there, he applied for an academic position in Europe through a programme called Scholars at Risk, which helps academics who are threatened or attacked. A year and a half ago, he arrived in Belgium. Kerry Smith went to meet him there. Kassem could hardly have been given a more Belgian project when he first arrived at Ghent University. In Syria, he'd been trying to start a lab studying edible oils. He's a food scientist. But in his new country... I work on chocolate, so... It was the first time I'm working on this kind of product. In, in Ghent University, uh, we tasted a lot of chocolate and different kinds of chocolates. Kassem enjoyed the novelty of tasting chocolate on the job, and he was grateful to be doing what he had trained to do. But the way he personalised his project shows just how much he misses what he's left behind. I tried to innovate a new kind of chocolate, so I tried to make like a marriage between the Orient and, and chocolate. So I tried to make like a mixture between chocolate and these kind of black cumin seeds. Kassem's chocolate job was funded for a year, which wasn't enough time to develop the product properly. Then he was offered a scholarship in Brussels, one of ten refugees to be taken on by the university, nine Syrians and one Iraqi. The scholarship runs for two years. But even if his job is secure for that long, he feels in limbo. For one thing, his wife and three kids are still in Turkey, waiting to hear if they can join him. We can say I'm happy, I'm not happy at the same time. Happy to find a scholarship and to get it for two years, but I'm not happy because uh, I, I have nothing related now to my country. Kassem had lived in Europe before, under very different conditions. He did a PhD and a postdoc in Nancy in France. He's more comfortable speaking French than English. He'd always planned to go back to Syria, so in 2009 he rejoined the staff at Al-Furat University in a town called Deir Azor in the east of Syria. 
he looked for funding to start his own lab. At the end of 2010, he had to do a year of compulsory military service, postponed because he'd been studying. His service was meant to run for a year, and he tried to keep up with his students whenever he had time off. When I get a holiday, for example, within my military service, so I come back to my faculty, I meet my students, because I had a master's students, and I had to find some time for them. But in 2011, as Qasem was anticipating the end of his time with the army, the rumblings of conflict began. So uh, the Syrian regime, they forced us to stay in the army, even if you are a professor at university, but you have to stay. So uh, we, they told us that maybe one month, two months, and you will be released, we can say. Seven months later, and no way, you have to stay. Qasem couldn't sit patiently and wait for the army to let him go. This wasn't just an inconvenience to his research programme to be solved by biding his time. He was horrified that he'd ended up on the wrong side of a war, or worse, that he'd ended up on any side of a war at all. I'm not a soldier. I'm not a fighter. I'm a professor at university, and it's not my mission to get armed and kill people. They gave me... Uh, a Kalashnikov before, but I gave it when I finished my military service and I didn't never use it. We are a human. We are not created for getting arms and killing people. You might be able to see where this is going. Qasem deserted. He'd had the plan in his head for a while, but not the specifics. In the event, he left the military centre in Damascus and went to an apartment owned by a brother in a nearby suburb planning to leave the area as soon as he could borrow a non-military ID card. But his timing was terrible. The city borders were closed because of a bombing. A full month later, a friend managed to get him his brother's ID. Only a few days after they were reunited, his brother was killed in an attack by the Syrian army. Qasem's family pushed him to leave. Leaving the country in this situation was so dangerous. Because if you are arrested by the regime, you are killed. And then the bureaucracy began. Qasem contacted scholars at risk, who were at first too snowed under to help. As an indication, the organisation says that they had 560 applications in 2016 and were able to place under 200 scholars. Two years of fruitless job searching, and Qasem contacted the programme again. This time they could help with the place at Ghent. A complex visa process took up even more time, ping-ponging between embassies in France and Belgium and the threat of having to go back to Turkey to apply again. I confirmed with scholars at risk that this kind of wait isn't unusual, and it's worse for scholars applying from their home country. I asked Qasem if he thought, despite all the hoop-jumping, that it was more likely that a researcher could find a job than someone working in another profession. Yes, of course. I think uh, being uh, like a researcher or a scientist is, uh, was very helpful. Else I couldn't find a job maybe easily. I couldn't be invited by a university. And uh, I think also in, in a research uh, domain, we are trying to help each other. Qasem knows that a lot of Syrian academics haven't been so fortunate. Those still in Syria are in danger. In 2016, a doctor believed to be the last paediatrician in the rebel-held part of Aleppo was killed in an airstrike on a hospital. 
and those Kasemnos who've escaped to Turkey can't find jobs in science. They are working like, for example, at restaurants or maybe in, in another, for example, domain. So you can imagine a professor at university and he cannot find a good job for him now. And education is very important in our life. If you lose education in each county or anywhere, you lose the generation. If you leave, for example, Syria now like this, and if most of researchers and scientists were killed or arrested, how can you build your country again? And how can you help the new generation now? You cannot do that. He thinks about this all the time, going back and rebuilding. He sometimes thinks about his lab. Just before his military service began, he managed to buy an iatro scan, a piece of equipment the size of a printer that analyzes lipids. It was hard to get the money for it and hard to get it to arrive. So finally, I got one of my important instruments, but I didn't have the chance to test it or to work on it. When uh, the war started. So it's, is it still sitting there in your I don't lab? Know. I don't know. I don't know. If it's destroyed or maybe somebody took it, uh, I don't know. Kasem's biggest hope is for peace in his home country and in the meantime for a little taste of stability for himself and his family. He hasn't seen them except on Skype since December 2015. Turkey has closed its borders to Syrians, so he can't go visit them. As this show aired, he was still waiting for news on his family's visa application. Being a scientist has freed him, but only in a very limited sense of that word. He doesn't know what will happen once his scholarship in Brussels is up. It'll have to be another job, because he doesn't like the idea of government handouts. But he does have this business idea, another way of using his food science expertise to blend the two cultures he has moved between. I made also chocolate from uh, camel milk. Camel milk? Yes, yes. I just thought about the mixture between always the Orient and the Occident. That was Qasem Al-Sayed Mahmoud at the Free University in Brussels. He's currently studying how to recycle waste water from the potato industry. You can find out more about Scholars at Risk at scholarsatrisk.org. This week's episode of The Nature Podcast ties in with a special edition of Nature, which looks in-depth at many aspects of migration. Qasem is also profiled in this week's magazine, along with two other refugee scientists. Find that and plenty more at nature.com forward slash nature. Next, Adam takes a look at a form of migration that researchers expect will only intensify with time. Robin Bronan is a human rights lawyer in Alaska in the US. Among the groups she's been working with are three entire villages who've been struggling with an extraordinary problem. There are three Alaska Native communities that have been trying to relocate their entire community for, I would say, the last two decades. And these villages have good reason to have been trying to relocate for so long. Climate change. They're located on the Alaskan coastline, 
where Arctic sea ice serves as a natural buffer from extreme storms. The climate so far north has always been harsh, but as temperatures rise and sea ice retreats, conditions are becoming unlivable. All of these communities are remote indigenous communities without road access, and we get hurricane-strength storms that come in, and so there are no evacuation routes. And so these indigenous groups have been left with no option but to relocate. Despite years of hard-fought battles from the communities and from Robin, they found themselves stuck. These communities that have limited financial resources have done everything possible. They've testified in front of Congress, they've had multiple conversations with the White House, and still none of them have relocated. It's excruciating. I mean, it's excruciating for me, and I don't live in any of those places. And honestly, it makes me want to cry. Robin's frustration isn't directed at any one individual or group, but at systems of government that haven't yet learnt how to deal with the realities of climate migration. Part of the challenge and the reason why none of these communities have been able to relocate is because we have no governance framework in the United States or anywhere in the world to facilitate a community-wide relocation. The policy framework to deal with these situations may still be evolving, but geographer Jessica Marta Kenyon explains that the research community has been discussing climate migration almost as long as it's been discussing climate change. The first IPCC report came out, I think, in 1990 and argued that climate displacement, climate migration would be one of the biggest effects of climate change. And climate migration could affect vast numbers of people. So it's difficult to quantify. You know, the estimates range between 100 and 300 million people. Hundreds of millions migrating because of climate change. But not all climate migrations are the same. People can be forced from their homes by a sudden flood or the gradual rise of the oceans. And these subtleties can affect how people move and how decision makers need to respond. Here's Coco Warner, who works on climate impacts, risks and vulnerabilities at the UN Climate Secretariat. People move if they aren't safe. So, for example, climate stressors like floods. And because people's livelihoods are in those areas, they try and go back. The other pattern that we see is when climate stressors make it hard for people to continue their livelihoods. Consider sea level rise and saltwater intrusion. And those patterns are more nuanced. You have people moving temporarily, seasonally. Um, but generally, what people are after is stable incomes and food security. These are the kinds of dilemmas and questions that I'm hoping that a partnership between science and decision makers can start um, grappling with. But while progress is being made, decision-makers are still dealing with frameworks from another era. One of the challenges that we find is a lot of our institutions that manage national borders, that manage humanitarian affairs, and the movement of people were created in a specific time period in the 20th century, particularly following World War II. The context in the 20th, 21st century has changed so significantly that those institutions are 
grappling and, and struggling to meet the current realities. This struggle translates to real problems for people who are forced to move due to climate change. Because refugee status is only applied to people fleeing persecution, legally there's no such thing as a climate refugee. In 2015, a man from the low-lying island nation Kiribati put these legal frameworks to the test. He was seeking asylum in New Zealand on the basis that rising seas would one day make it impossible for him to stay in his home country. In order to, to say, OK, the, the human rights are threatened, the court needed to establish whether or not there was an imminent threat. The climate modelling is done in a way that it, it gave estimates out towards mid-century, which wasn't considered by the court as an imminent threat. And so the judge had to turn down the case. The case failed in part because of the gaps between the existing scientific literature and the current policy frameworks. There's no doubt that both the scientific and political issues surrounding climate migration are complex. But for Robin Bronan, there's huge urgency to overcome these kinds of problems. The longer that we wait to talk about these really difficult issues, the harder it's going to be to make sure that people's human rights are protected because I personally feel morally responsible for the fact that these communities are being forced to relocate because we have not been able to curb our greenhouse gas emissions. That was Robin Bronan, Executive Director of the Alaska Institute for Justice. Before her, you heard from Coco Warner at the UNFCCC and Jessica Marta-Kenyon, who's at the University of California, Santa Barbara. For more on climate migration, check out the Nature Podcast episode from 15th of January 2015, where Jessica spoke with us about a recent comment piece she'd co-authored. It's easy to throw around numbers when it comes to migration. But the numbers we use and what we compare them to can affect how we see them. Sharmini Bundel takes a look at the current European migrant crisis and its place in recent history. According to the UN Refugee Agency, in 2015 there were 21.3 million refugees across the world. Just over half of these come from only three countries, Syria, Afghanistan and Somalia. The Syrian civil war, for example, has led to the largest outflow of refugees, around 5 million, from any one country in the 21st century. But is this unprecedented? Europe saw similar numbers of refugees in the early 1990s, from Yugoslavia and the collapse of the Soviet Union. In the same decade, wars in West Africa, Congo, Iraq and the Rwandan genocide created more than 5 million refugees. Going back further, in the 1980s, more than 6 million people fled Afghanistan during the Soviet-Afghan war. When considering overall global migration rather than just refugees, over the past 50 years, the rates have actually stayed relatively stable, according to statistician Guy Abel. And if you consider migrants as a proportion of the increasing global population, migration rates are actually at a 50-year low. Whatever numbers you pick, Use them wisely. To 
to unpick more of the statistics around migration, make sure to head to nature.com forward slash news, where an interactive graphic helps break down where people have been migrating from and to. Finally, the future of border controls. What determines if you're allowed into a country? We can never check citizens on a systematic basis. So if you are a citizen, you are entitled to enter your space of sovereignty without being seen as a, as a threat. This is Gemma Golden-Clavel, a policy analyst who focuses on technological ethics. For non-citizens, we can do anything. We can check their religion, their um, previous travel patterns, data on their families. There's no legal limits other than fundamental rights to what kind of scrutiny we can subject non-citizens to. And the types of data which are being used to make these decisions are changing every day. Before it'd be your name and uh, your ID number, your birth date. Now there's also a lot of other information like what kind of meals do you have on the plane, which can, of course, identify whether you belong to one religion or another. As the prevalence of data increases, so does the potential for automation. Enter smart borders. Well, smart borders is the process of automation of border crossing. The idea is that if we are able to get more data and to move from human to automatic checks, we will have a fully automated border crossing process. But Gemma has concerns about the way smart borders are being introduced. There's no monitoring institution that is making sure that these promises that technology holds for improved border crossing are actually delivering for the citizen. As automated systems fed on big data become more prevalent, what happens to the rights of the citizens that are using them? When we provide our fingerprints, we sign a general statement saying that we are aware of our data protection rights, but we're not. Gemma is a researcher at the University of Barcelona and a founding partner at Etikas Research and Consulting, a group which has been keeping an eye on the changing practices surrounding border control. Whereas before, um, the checks would be conducted at the border, now we're turning that into a process by which people are pre-vetted. Um, and so their eligibility to travel is uh, determined before they get to the, to the borders. And that process of monitoring of their data continues all the way through the expiration of that visa or them leaving the country that they're visiting. When someone goes through a smart border, they're faced with a machine. So what happens next? Gemma explained, starting with the case study of an EU citizen travelling within the EU. The machine, oftentimes, most of the times, the only thing it does is is check whether you are the person that your document says you are. So you're not being identified, but your, your identity is being verified unless there's some indication that you might pose a threat and then your data may be checked against external police databases and other databases. That's for EU citizens. If you're not a EU citizen, then we don't just do verification, but also identification, which means that your data is checked against a series of databases. The idea is that these machines can streamline and simplify the process of migration in an impartial way. And Gemma is on board with the concept. I think there's clearly a lot of promise in what technology can do to help human processes like migration. However, the concern is that the way that it's currently being laid out, there's a lot of inefficiencies and questions that are not being answered. And these aren't theoretical questions. We're already on a mixed system. 
So it's not like now it's one way and with smart borders it'll be different. We've been laying out smart borders for quite some time now. So we already have parts of the smart border system. Gemma's been investigating problems with these smart border systems. We've identified loads of mistakes that have nothing to do with security threats. We have a clear issue with names that are written in in non-Latin alphabets, for instance. So people with a Thai name or an Arabic name, maybe someone made a mistake when inputting the the information. We've also found instances of, of bad matches, bad linking of of information inside the databases. So you might um, input a fingerprint and it leads you to a completely different person. And we don't know why that happens. It's a mistake of the the system. One problem is that when denied entry to a country, you're not necessarily told why. Often, if you have been singled out by one country in the European Union as someone who should not travel and you apply for a visa in another EU country, that EU country will only know that you're not allowed to travel, but they will not know why. Usually the only thing, the only information that you get is that that it's due to national security issues, but you get no explanation on that. And that's one of the problems that we have in terms of redress or the ability of people to defend themselves. This is the case with the current system, but it gets even more complicated when automated smart borders are thrown into the mix. The problem is that you have no way of knowing what is happening with your data inside the e-gate. We have not developed the mechanisms of accountability for citizens and non-citizens to know what is happening. And therefore, when something goes wrong, to be able to pinpoint what is that happened and then, and then redress it if that's what should happen. The potential mistakes made by a system are one thing, but Gemma's work calls other benefits of smart borders into question, like the ability of an automated system to be impartial. Technology is not neutral because it's, it's programmed by someone who has values and, and objectives. This gets to the root of a real sticking point for a system which tries to marry together technology, values and laws. We have laws that talk about proportionality and dignity and non-discrimination. How are engineers supposed to interpret that and turn it into technical specifications? Someone needs to be helping in that process of translation of human values, of legal, legal values and legal codes into technology. The concerns with these systems range even to the user's experience. We keep finding um, technical systems that are built for young, white, affluent people because that's, that reflects the engineers and so they think everyone must be like me and they must make the same use of technology that I make. Despite all of these issues, Gemma doesn't believe that smart borders are impossible to implement. We can find solutions, but someone needs to acknowledge that we have a problem. Some of the issues raised with smart borders can appear very worrying. But Gemma stressed that these are not necessarily caused by nefarious actions. One of the things that we find over and over again is that mistakes in in the field of the ethics of technology are more due to lack of experience and knowledge than to bad faith. So there is hope for things being done differently. But we need the knowledge, we need the diagnosis, we need the work, we need the field work, we need for someone to be assessing how systems work in practice and having the authority to reverse the processes that are not working properly. That was Gemma Golden-Clavel from the University of Barcelona and Etikas Research and Consulting. She's written a comment piece in this week's Nature, Exploring Smart Borders. Read it and more in Nature's Migration Special at nature.com forward slash nature.
That's it for this week's Migration Special Show. We'll be back next week in the usual format, taking a look at the earliest evidence for life. And make sure to listen to February's Back Chat and Futures episodes. Both are out now on the podcast feed. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Adam Levy. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.